I'll give you all a moment to turn to Judges 10, starting in verse 6. Judges 10, 6 through 16. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab and the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook Yahweh and did not serve him. So the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin, against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And Yahweh said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to Yahweh, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served Yahweh, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. This is the word of Yahweh. Good morning. So I don't remember the exact year, uh, but I remember it was the early 90s. Christmas morning, my brothers and I opened a present from my mother to find a Super Nintendo. (laughs) My life was forever changed. We spent that day and many days playing all kinds of games. Our favorite was probably Super Mario World, uh, but we played Zombies Ate My Neighbors. It was a good one. Michael Jordan, Chaos in the Windy City, Turtles in Time. And today, I'm really not into video games. I, I could care less. But then, man, I loved it. I spent a lot of time and... Then it got even better, because Nintendo announced their next big gaming system. It's called the Nintendo 64, or N64 for short, and it was a big deal. It added a whole new dimension to video gaming. Literally, it was the first time video games went three-dimensional. And I remember my brother and friend and I, we were sitting and talking about it, and we're just, we, we, ha- we didn't have one, but we had read about it, we'd heard about it, and it was like, oh... Man, if a character in the game sneezes, you could actually see his head like move towards his hand and you could see him blink and we're just like, this is gonna be amazing. So I've got a graphic here, um, a slide of a Super Nintendo versus the Nintendo 64. So you can see it was quite a big difference. In fact, Time Magazine said, and I quote, that the Nintendo 64 has achieved the most realistic and compelling three-dimensional experience ever presented by a computer. Okay, now, I mean, if you've seen any recent movie with computer graphics, video games today, I don't know if I would say that's the most compelling three-dimensional experience ever, but you can see how at the time it was a big deal. It was a whole new level of complexity to characters we already knew and loved. But I'm not here this morning just to talk about video games. Uh, I want to use that as an illustration uh, because I think many of us, when it comes to thinking about the character of God and our understanding of who God is, 
many of us think with kind of a Super Nintendo mind, a flat, two-dimensional mind that really doesn't allow for the complexity of God's character. We think that he's either all-loving and fluffy and merciful, like this giant teddy bear who would never be harsh, never say anything that's hard to hear, never say something that contradicts you. Or we might think he's a grumpy old Scrooge who just loves being mean, and he has a good day every once in a while, but that's the exception rather than the rule. And maybe those are overstatements. Maybe you don't consciously think of God in those terms, but all of us, myself included, um, I think have too simple, too small an understanding of God. The character of God is far more complex, far more profound, far more beautiful than we give him credit for oftentimes. And this passage uh, will sort of pull the curtain back a little bit, invite us into the complexity of God's character, understanding a little bit more about God's heart. So my hope and my prayer is that we would walk away this morning with a little bit more of a three-dimensional view of God, an understanding of his character that has a little bit more depth to it. So uh, open your Bibles. I think Olivia already had you there at Judges 10.6. Uh, if you didn't do it the first time, get there now because um, I don't have verses on the screen. So I, I am going to need you to be um, looking in your scriptures with me. Now before we jump into the passage itself, let me just give you some context, big picture of what has been happening in the story of the Bible so far. The book of Judges comes after the nation of Israel has secured its political borders. So it's established itself as a country, but it's before they have kings. And so they're in this kind of weird in-between time, and the people are not led by one monarch. They're led by like these regional tribal chieftains, and we call them judges, and so that's where we get the name. But we shouldn't think of judge like a courtroom. We should think of them like uh, sort of like a military militia kind of person, a regional uh, civil leader, like a mayor, and uh, like a pseudo-priest-ish kind of person. And they didn't do good in really any one of those areas, but they did kind of all of them, okay? Now, the author of Judges has given us a key to understanding the book. Like, it's almost as if you've been given a math test with the answers at the front. Um, so in chapter two, he introduces us to a cycle that the book will follow uh, for a long time. And this is the cycle here. The Israelites will commit idolatry. They will forsake God and worship the false gods around them. In his anger, God will send them into oppression. They will be enslaved or oppressed by one of these neighboring peoples. And then they will cry out to God and he will send a deliverer, someone like Gideon or Ehud, if you're familiar with any of the names in the book. Most of them are those deliverers. And then the people and the land will enjoy peace for a period of time, usually just until that judge dies, and then we repeat the cycle, and we go through it over and over again. The reason I'm telling you that is because today's passage introduces the fifth iteration of this cycle. So if you've been reading the book of Judges, you're, you're here, and you're like, okay, I, I've seen this before. Now here is something interesting, though, because today's passage will follow this pattern but it will deviate slightly from it. And in deviating, that's when I think it's sort of, like I said earlier, pulling back the curtain. So, enough chit-chat. Let's look at the text and get to work. We're going to start in verse 6, uh, the first section of verses 6 through 9. And 
uh, opens with a phrase that's very familiar to the book. It says that again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. This has happened time and again. And like many of us, the Israelites returned to their sin even after they've been delivered from it, even after they said, I'll never, ever, 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 pinky swear, spit promise, never do it again. <laughs> they do it again. They again commit evil in the eyes of the Lord. Proverbs says that as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. It's exactly what you have happening here. But there is something unique. This is the first time that the book gets descriptive about what exactly that evil is that they're doing. And it goes on to list all these false gods that they're worshiping. It tells us that they're worshiping the Baals. So count them here. Um, the Baals, the Ashtros, the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, Ammonites, and Philistines. Okay? So even if you're not familiar with all those names, that's okay. The list adds up to seven. And that's not an accident. The author is being intentional here. Seven is oftentimes a number of completeness, wholeness in the Bible. So what the author is telling you is not just that they committed idolatry, but that they really committed idolatry. They didn't just kind of bend the first commandment, which says you shall have no other gods before me. They have shattered it. They have abandoned the God of the Bible for these false gods. This is not syncretism, where they try to worship Yahweh and these false gods. It says that they forsook him, and they didn't serve him. They totally forgot about him. And they went completely to these other gods. It's complete and total abandonment. Now, we don't know all the gods in the ancient Near East pantheon. There were a lot of them. But three of the big ones these people would have been worshiping are called Dagon, Molech, and Chemosh. And they're mentioned other places in the Bible. They are horrendously evil gods. They're angry. They're hard to please. They're bloodthirsty. They're routinely worshipped with temple prostitution, both male and female. Probably the worst thing about them is that they're routinely worshipped with child sacrifice. And so what you have here is nasty. So if you remember that cycle I was showing you, um, it's not just on simple repeat through the book. It's also on an intensification, which means this book is a downward spiral, spiritually and morally. And we're almost at the bottom of the barrel here. And so God, the God who had led them out of Egypt, the God who had cared for them every step along the way, the God who had given them water and food, the God who had promised to give them the land, the God who alone is worthy of all of their worship and all of ours, is rightly offended and angry that they have forsaken him. And so it says that his anger burned against them and he sold them into the hands of the Ammonites and the Philistines. Now because the sin is really bad, the oppression in this particular instance is also really bad. This is the only time in the book of Judges where they are sold into the hands of two oppressors. Normally it's just one. And it says in verse eight that they shattered and crushed them. Or it might, yours might say oppressed and shattered. One translation I really like says shattered and battered them. I like that shattered and battered phrase a little bit more here uh, because in the original language, the, root, the words actually come from the same root and they rhyme. The author is using a literary technique. He's using rhyming to tell you how bad it is. They shattered and battered these guys. And in verse nine, it says that they were severely 
distressed. In fact, the Ammonites are even crossing over the river to pick a fight. I mean, they are going out of their way. And so this is bad. So we've got the cycle of idolatry, and now we've moved to oppression. And it lasts for 18 years. That's a long time. Think about what you were doing 18 years ago, and imagine from that moment till now, you've been living under cruel bondage and oppression. If you're under 18, that's your whole life, right? And so what you have here is the idolatry and oppression leads into the next section, starting in verse 10, which is a request and a refusal. The Israelites wait 18 years, and they finally cry out to God, and they say, look in verse 10, they say, we've sinned against you, forsaking our God and worshiping the Baals. They don't make excuses. They own their sin. We've done this. We've messed up, and we know it. We're sorry. Now, up until this point, this first narrative has been following that cycle pretty much perfectly. Even if it's been more descriptive, we're still following that cycle. But here's where it changes. Every other time in the book, when they cry out, God sends somebody. Here they cry out, and God says, no. He refuses. I'm not going to send a deliverer. And so this is different. Look in verse 11 and 12. He starts making his own list of all the different times he saved them. And guess how many items are on this list? Egyptians, Amorites, Ammonites, Philistines, Sidonians, Amalekites, and Maonites. Seven. Again, not an accident. The point here is God is saying, look at all I have done for you. Every oppressor you've ever had, I've delivered you. Every problem I have solved, I have taken care of you. I have protected you. I have not allowed them to harm you. If you think about some of the names on this list, these are the superpowers of the world, particularly Egypt. Israel's not a strong nation, and yet they have overcome these seven and more oppressors. And God is saying, even in that, you still forsake me. And now when times get bad, you come crawling back. He's heard this story before. He's tired of being used. And he says, no. Whoa. God says one of the most soul-shattering statements. I will save you no more. And he tells them, why don't you go to those other gods that you've chosen? Cry out to them. Let them save you. Think for a moment of how much that must have stung. If it took 18 years for them to cry out to Yahweh, what do you think they were doing for the first 17? Seems perfectly logical to me. They have already cried out to Molech, Chemosh, Dagon, and all the others. They have probably made every sacrifice they know how. It may have cost them, even some of them, their own children to do so. And so when he says, you go back to those gods, both God and the people know full well they cannot do anything. The Israelites have learned, as anyone who has ever worshipped an idol learns, they cannot deliver what they promise. The Israelites know, they know by the time they come back to Yahweh that he is their only hope. And at this point, he's refusing. What are we supposed to do with this? That's hard. 
that's hard to swallow. It's unexpected for us to hear that someone would ask God for help and he would say no. That's probably not something you hear often. And this goes back to our two-dimensional Super Nintendo view of God. We've been taught that he's a God of love and mercy and forgiveness, which praise God is true. Do not hear me contradict that. We will see that later in this passage. But if we have taken that to mean that God does not care about sin, that he will not discipline his people, that he is not righteous and holy and angry when people disobey him, then we have grossly misunderstood the Bible. We have been theologically coddled and so that when we come to passages like this, it shakes us. And so we have to think differently. I've got three kids and when my oldest was born, if his binky fell on the floor, holy moly, the world would have, you thought, would have ended, right? You've got to boil it, you've got to put it through the dishwasher, you've got to sanitize that thing. There cannot be a germ within a 10-foot radius of all of his orifices, Okay? <laughs> The second kid is born, time goes on, you realize, okay, let's lighten up a little bit, but the binky falls, you still wash it, you still clean it, you still want to make sure there's no germs, time goes on, our third is born, and it falls on the floor, I'm like, pick it up, put it back in your mouth, come on, what are you doing, don't just leave that laying in the dirt, and see, as time goes on, I realize it's not that big of a deal. Many of us start treating sin the same way. As time goes on, we realize it's not that big a deal. God will forgive. It's okay. We develop calluses on our souls. Sin decreases in magnitude in our mind, and we don't take it as seriously as it should. We are not offended by it as we ought to be until it reaches a level of extremity. And then we project that same thing onto God and so when we see him, especially in the Old Testament, but even the New as well, we see him and it feels like he's flying off the handle when in fact he's the only one thinking rightly about our sin. We think for some reason that because time has gone on, that Jesus has come, that he's like the parent who's finally figured out it's not that big of a deal. That's not how it works with God. He is the same God today as he was then and he is just as angry at sin today as he was then, and he takes it as seriously today as he did then. And so many of us have too small a view of sin and too soft a view of God. And what we might need to do here is we might need to readjust our thinking and realize that sin's a big deal, and God does take it seriously, and he might even discipline you, yes, you, his Christian son or daughter, if you disobey him, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. In fact, just the opposite. It means that he does love you and he cares for you and he wants to keep you from it. The request leads to a refusal and God can see right through these people. This is not the return of the prodigal son. This is what one commentator calls bomb shelter religion which is when people conveniently turn to God in times of crisis because they believe he is hopelessly naive and soft and he'll of course fix whatever the problem is when in reality they've rejected him in every other area of their life. They are not truly repenting and God knows it and he calls them out on it. And you can tell that because of what happens in verse 15 and 16. Look in verse 15, but the Israelites said to the Lord, they're desperate at this point. Again, they know those false gods can do nothing. They say, we've sinned. They repeat themselves. We've sinned. 
Do with us whatever you think best, or literally whatever is good in your eyes. Just please, please save us now. We'll do whatever you ask. Please. And here in verse 15, excuse me, in verse 16, they put actions. They follow through with what they say. It says that they got rid of the foreign gods from among them, and they worshiped Yahweh. So think about this with me. The fact that they still had the foreign gods among them as they're crying out in verse 10 the first time, they're asking God to save them from the consequences of their idolatry while they have shrines to the idols in their house. This is like a man who's caught in an affair and repents by telling his wife, I'm sorry, let's just let her live in the guest bedroom and I'll stay with you. That doesn't work. It's insane and God will not have it. He says, you actually have to forsake them if you're going to come back to me. And then, in verse 16, the final sentence there is what I believe to be the most beautiful sentence in the book of Judges. And I love the way the NIV translates it. It says, he could bear Israel's misery no longer. And it's actually a... um, a Hebrew idiom or metaphor, and literally it says his soul was shortened on account of the trouble of Israel. The literal phrase only appears a handful of times in scripture, and it's always this impatience and frustration at the situation. It's an internal agonizing and impatience, and usually it's in the context of anger, and God clearly is angry here, but this one also seems to be communicating a sense of compassion a sense of grief for these people. In some Jewish traditions, this sentence uh, would actually fell, fell into a category that you could only read it in Hebrew, but you could never translate it because they didn't want their congregations getting the wrong idea that God could get tired or beat down. It's what's called an anthropomorphism, which means that you attribute human qualities to describe God, and they didn't want to lower people's view of God, so they just would say it in a language they didn't understand. Now, we do something similar today. Theologians today have what's called the doctrine of impassibility. Okay, if you haven't heard of that, that's okay. Most people haven't and shouldn't. Um, <laughs> it's, it states that God is not involuntarily moved emotionally, which means he doesn't react to humans. He's always proactive. And what they're trying to do there is they're trying to protect you from the thought that you could hurt God emotionally. And I can't describe to you all the ins and outs of it and what a person like that would say to this passage. There's a whole lot of nerdy discussion. Uh, But what seems to be clear in this passage is that it is the grief of God to see his people in pain, even if that pain is caused by their own rebellion against him. So uh, one commentator wrote, it was God's wayward son who had broken his heart. Even in his tough love, it kills God to see his people suffer. Isaiah 63, 9, it says that when they suffered, or when they were afflicted, he was afflicted. And so any of you who have experienced watching a loved one hurt themselves could probably resonate with this. You've seen them build, maybe it's your son, your daughter, your parent, family member, friend, you have seen them build a prison cell by their own bad choices and their own refusal to repent. And you feel simultaneously angry and frustrated at their stupidity, their stubbornness, and yet you feel compassion 
at their suffering. And it seems to be where God's at here. So what happens? Does God change his mind here? Does he, does he decide in verse 16 to be nice when in verse 10 and 11 he was mean? Does he, does he switch? Does he lie and he says, I'm not gonna save you. Oh, but ah, never mind, I will. Is he flippant, multiple personality? No, I think God is actually acting in perfect accord with his already declared character. In Exodus 34, God tells Moses, I am Yahweh, Yahweh, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But do not leave the guilty unpunished. God has already shown himself to be pure and holy and righteous. This is not news to us. We see in scripture that God vehemently hates all sin and wrongdoing. He is offended by it, he is angry with it, and he will judge it severely. But, and what I'm about to say does not contradict or override what I just said, but at the same time, God's heart beats for his people. God cannot help but love them and have compassion on them. And when his people truly repent, God instinctively shows them grace like it's a knee-jerk reaction. He is predisposed to show mercy. John Piper says that God's anger has a stiff safety lock, but his mercy has a hair trigger. He rushes to forgive. He cleans the dirty. He makes friends of his enemies. He invites those who once rejected him and rebelled against him to his table because of his deep, deep love for them. And when we read of God pronouncing threats of judgment in scripture or making statements like, I will save you no more, uh, what one commentator said was really helpful to me. He said, you need to understand those to always, because of God's declared character early in scripture, to always, quote, imply a reserve of mercy for the truly repentant. What that means is that God is a God of mercy, love, and forgiveness. He is a God of second chances and new beginnings. And when you truly repent, he will forgive. He is faithful to do that. So what we see here, I think in Judges, is in these 10 verses, this three-dimensional view of God, this, this kind of snippet of that Exodus 34 character displayed in action with how he interacts with the Israelites. We get a glimpse of the complexity and the emotional depth of God. And it's above my pay grade and I think above the pay grade of any human to try to map out the intricacies of the emotional life of God. It's like when we try to describe this kind of stuff, it's almost like you're uh, driving in fog. I mean, you see enough to not end up in a theological or doctrinal ditch, but you don't see everything. And so we've got to come to God with this, this awe of his character. So here's the main point that I that I'm think this passage wants to show us. God loves to show mercy to those who repent. He loves to show mercy to those who repent. Ezekiel 33, 11, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but I'd rather that they turn from their ways and live. God prefers a repentant sinner to a condemned one. And uh, Jonah, a perfect example of this. If you remember the story of Jonah, he's a prophet that shows up in this town and his sermon is one sentence, 
40 days and this city shall be overturned. What do the people do? They repent. They tear their clothes. They say, we're sorry. We have they fling themselves under the mercy of God and he shows mercy. Now, we've seen the cycle where you have idolatry leading into oppression. They cry out. He refuses, but now he has compassion. So now we're back onto the cycle. So what's the next step? Deliverance. So these next passages introduce the stories of Jephthah and Samson. And if those names sound weird to you, that's, that's okay. They are the final two judges of the book, and they will deliver from the Ammonites and the Philistines. And ultimately, while God will use them, Jephthah and Samson are not the deliverers that the people really need. Jephthah will celebrate his military victory by worshiping Yahweh in the same way that people worshiped those other gods, namely by sacrificing his daughter to them, demonstrating he has no idea who the God of the Bible actually is. Samson will break pretty much every commitment he's made to God, and he will be completely unable to control himself uh, in terms of his temper or his sexuality. And at best, these two men and every other judge in the book deliver only a superficial salvation of deliverance from oppression, which is all the, ju- all the people are asking for. Think about this with me. The people ask to be saved from oppression. They ask to be saved from the consequence of their sin rather than the sin itself. And Jephthah and Samson will do that, but the problem, the root problem of an idolatrous heart remains. Jephthah and Samson can't fix that. And the book of Judges is looking for somebody to fix that problem. The next major section in the book will be characterized by the phrase, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so the book of Judges is looking for a king to try to fix that problem. And most scholars believe it was written as sort of an apologetic for King David during his time. It's supposed to point you to King David. But the story of scripture makes it clear that King David and every king that follows him will not solve that problem. They will, in fact, perpetuate it. Several of the kings will return to these very same gods. They will build more altars. They will lead the people of Israel into the same exact sin. Jephthah doesn't save. Samson doesn't save. David doesn't save. You had to see this coming. Only Jesus can save He is the only deliverer who is the answer to the problem this book presents. Ultimately, what these people need is not a deliverer who will crush their enemies, but someone who will transform their hearts from an idolatrous and rebellious heart to one that worships Yahweh. The Bible makes it clear that idolatry is a heart problem. It's not just bowing down to statues. And so what they need is a new heart. And Jesus alone offers that. Jesus alone offers knows and loves God wholeheartedly. He alone believes and obeys the word of God perfectly. He delivers from the root of the problem, not just the symptoms. He replaces the rebellious hearts of men and women, including yours and including mine, with a new heart that beats for God, that forsakes the false promises that this world has to offer us. He alone is our hope. And you and I are in that same cycle so often And the only person who can truly break that cycle is Jesus Christ. 
He delivers us not by crushing our enemies, but by being crushed for us. So what Jesus does is he stands under God as if he had committed the idolatry seven times over. He stands under God in your place and in mine. And in, he takes on the wrath of God. He's not just handed over to Ammonites and Philistines. That would be bad, but that's, that wouldn't ultimately save us. Jesus delivers us from the ultimate judgment of sin. And so, if God desires, if God loves to show mercy, the way that he shows us mercy is through Jesus Christ. If you want to experience the mercy that God has for you, his desire to forgive you and have grace on you and be merciful to you, the only way to do it is through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other deliverer. There is no other false God that you are gonna be able to turn to that will help you. Maybe temporarily you'll be fooled into thinking it can. But sooner or later, that idol will let you down. Because of what Christ has done, because he rose from the dead, he now sits at the right hand of the Father, the book of Hebrews tells us that we have confidence to enter the most holy place, to approach the throne of grace, and it says to find grace and mercy in our time of need. We come to God on the basis of what Jesus has done, truly repentant. We don't need to worry about hearing the phrase, I will save you no more. You come in Christ, he will always give you the grace and mercy that you need in your time of need. So today you're not gonna find temples to Molech or Chemosh, but every person in this room has in some way or other forsaken Yahweh and has served other gods. We do plenty of worshiping. We worship at the altar of self, acting as if we're the most important person in the room. Maybe a sacrifice at the altar of money. Everything, including my family and my faith, takes second place to my career. Maybe worship at the altar of family. Everything, including my God, takes second place to the health and well-being of my child or my marriage. We worship all kinds of things and we need to be delivered from them and the only way we're gonna experience the mercy God has is if we, like the Israelites, repent and true repent. Recognition of sin is not enough. You need to actually turn from your sin, take action steps to fight against it. So if you are realizing that your struggle is with greed and money and you worship uh, money, that's your idol, and you're gonna pray, Lord, please save me, from my idol of money, please forgive me for that, I forsake it, then you need to actually forsake it. You might need to delete some banking apps on your phone. You might need to stop checking your stocks and your retirement account every morning and letting that determine the course of your day. If you're gonna say, Lord, I, I'm way too deep into sexual immorality, pornography, prostitutes, or whatever it is, Lord, I wanna forsake that. I wanna be faithful to you, and if you're married, then to your spouse, then maybe you need to join an addiction recovery group, a sexual addiction recovery group. And if you're in that place, just as a side note, you can put that on your connection card. It will remain private. The elders can help you with that. My point is that if you're going to repent, you have to repent. You can't keep her in the guest bedroom. You've got to forsake it. Now, the mercy of God does not depend on the sincerity of your repentance. Let me just nuance this a little bit. You are not earning the favor or grace of God, pulling something out of him 
by your repentance. I just want you to see that that grace and mercy is there. It's yours for the taking. All you have to do is let go of what's in your hands. You've got to just get rid of the foreign gods among you. Even after coming to Christ, we have idols in our lives. We harbor them in the dark places of our soul. And for those of us who are believers in Jesus, it will be a lifelong process of discovering and repenting and re-repenting of those idols over and over. And we need the love of Jesus and his people to help expose and forsake those idols in our life. So I wanna offer at least three resources. If you're, if you're at a spot in life where you're feeling like, okay, I want to do that, then there's, and you should all want to do that, I hope. Um, there are three resources. One is a set of diagnostic questions. It's in your worship folder. It's got a set of statements. Um, and they'll say something like, my life only has meaning if, dot, dot, dot. There's a set of 20 statements. If you're honest with yourself, read those statements and circle the ones that apply to you. And that will help you at least kind of start reflecting on this. The other are these two books. One's called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller and the other is called Gospel Treason. Both of them uh, will walk you through a process of recognizing what idols are in your life and where you need to repent. I encourage everyone in this room to pick up one of these books and read it within the next two or three months. So God loves to show mercy to those who repent. His mercy is perfectly shown, perfectly given in the person of Jesus. Jesus is more than just a 3D image of God. The Bible tells us that he is God in the flesh. The fullness of deity dwells in him. The perfect representation of God. And we find the mercy that God loves to show when we turn from our sin and we turn to Christ. Let me pray. Lord, I'll be honest, this is simultaneously a really hard passage and a really comforting one. Really hard because you appear to be mean. God, but we know you're not. God, we know that your heart is love and compassion. God, we know that you desire to show love and mercy to your people. And so I also love this passage because of the statement that you could bear their misery no longer, Lord. Thank you that you unite yourself with us. Lord, would you please help us forsake our idols? Would you please help us to glorify your name, to worship Jesus? May he alone have preeminence and supremacy in our life over the idols that we uh, tend to draw or be drawn towards. I pray for each person in this room, for believers that they would repent of uh, idols in their life, for unbelievers, God, I ask that you would draw them to yourself, that they would experience your mercy for the first time even today. And I ask that in Jesus' name, amen.